Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Our guests today are Tracy Rosenberg, the Executive Director of the Media Alliance, and Mary Stone Ross, a nationally recognized expert in consumer privacy, cybersecurity, and data security. Mary and Tracy are leading the fight against Prop 24, a ballot initiative in this year's election. Prop 24 is a deceptive, so-called privacy measure being pushed by a wealthy San Francisco real estate developer. Mary and Tracy join us to discuss this curious ballot initiative, where it came from, and how it could harm consumer privacy throughout the state. I hope you'll listen to this important episode. Well, Tracy and Mary, thank you so much for being here. Really glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. I want to start with a little bit about your backgrounds because I think they're so interesting and important for the context of how this particular issue plays out. And Tracy, let me, let me start with you. You're executive director of the Media Alliance. What is your organization focus on? Well, MA is a democratic communications advocate. So we've spent a number of years talking about sort of communications platforms and sort of the policies and the rules of the road that govern them. So we did a lot of work on net neutrality and digital inclusion. And a number of years ago, we started thinking about cyber surveillance and online spying and online privacy as a really important part of the future of these platforms. And of course, Ed Snowden exploded that issue all over the place. So when California started uh, trying to come to terms with online data privacy and consumer privacy in general, and what that might mean in terms of where our data ends up, who has access to it, the unintended consequences and sort of collateral damage of totally unfettered distribution of data, we started to pay attention to all of that. So we've been active around data privacy legislation now for about four and a half years. Terrific. Helpful. So Mary, how did you come to Prop 24? I think you have a you know, deep background in the, the predecessor issues to this particular ballot initiative. Sure. So I was actually a proponent of, we never got a number because we didn't, we, we qualified, but never got the number of the California Consumer Privacy Act which was a ballot initiative before it passed through the legislature. So I started working with Alistair McTaggart, who's the proponent of Prop 24 almost five years ago now on its predecessor current law, which is the CCPA. We had a falling out over pulling um, that ballot initiative off the ballot and going through the legislature in Sacramento two years ago. And then I uh, started working on the opposition to Prop 24 after we had an assembly hearing on the ballot initiative. And we realized there's a lot of of voices that don't always um, agree that actually we're agreeing that Prop 24 is bad for California. So I take it you're on the side of wanting to go the legislative route, is that right? Uh, you mean two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. No, I actually, I the ballot initiative um, was stronger than what the legislative compromise was. So okay. just to clarify, I actually was never opposed going through the legislature. I thought that was a good outcome. Um, what I was opposed was that I thought we could have had a much stronger deal as a result of that negotiation. Gotcha. So 
so you started working, well, let's, let's focus on the, the, the CCPA for, because I think that's important for everyone to understand how Prop 24 would impact that. So it's a very dense law, but could you, for listeners who haven't thought about it in the last couple of months, give, give an overview of what it does? Sure. So the CCPA um, was passed in 2018. It just went into effect on January 1st of this year, 2020, and the Attorney General just started enforcing it July 1st of 2020. So everything is brand new. And what it does is it gives all Californians the right to find out what personal information a business is collecting about them, the right to opt out of the sale of their personal information, the right to delete their personal information, and then it provides a private right of action if a business fails to implement reasonable security practices and certain pieces of your personal information are breached. So that's a very simple. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. And, and, and there's some limits on how much data a company has to have before they're subject yeah, to Yeah, so right? there's the test. It's the test for if you're a business under the CCPA. And so right now the test is, do you collect the records of 100,000 consumers or do you earn 25,000, sorry, $25 million in annual gross revenue or do you earn more than 50% of your revenue by selling consumers' personal information? And it applies to both brick and mortar and online stores. And the nexus is the California consumer. So it doesn't matter where the business is located. It can be in California, it can be in Nebraska, it can be in Russia. Yeah, I think what's important to say about CCPA is, um, it's not perfect in any way, shape, or or form. And no offense here to none taken to Mary, I, but, I, 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 but it's, yeah, what it is is it's the only comprehensive statewide data privacy law in the country. GDPR is in Europe, in America, all we have is CCPA. That said, it does a couple of things that if you were writing a privacy law from scratch, you didn't have to go through the sausage factory of the legislature, that you might not have done. Two of them include the issue of sort of opt-in and opt-out, because all of the studies tell you that um, it's easier for people to affirmatively opt into something that they want to happen rather than that thing going forward on default unless they opt out. And secondly, we have a sort of pay for privacy clause in, in CCPA that lets companies charge you for something equal to the value of your data to that business and we're deeply concerned that there's a couple of loopholes there that companies are going to take advantage of. So when we look at, at, at CCPA, what we have is a good start, but not necessarily privacy law nirvana. Privacy advocates would like to be able to make it better and stronger in the future. And do you want to see that strengthening done through the legislative process, or would you be open to a ballot process under that? Well, I absolutely am, am, am open to either, but the problem with Prop 24 is it says some very specific things about what can happen after and if Prop 24 is passed. And one of those things is it says that any future changes have to deeply consider the impacts on business innovation and business profits 
And I mean, I can tell you from sitting around the legislature, there is no improvement to privacy law that doesn't have a significant impact on business profits and business innovation. So we have a situation here with Prop 24, where if we put this into place, we are making it much harder for privacy law to evolve and migrate, can adapt to changing conditions and to get stronger. And, and I'm not sure there's a real good argument at this point in time for, for nailing down privacy law in, into concrete in the way that Prop 24 is trying to do. And Tracy, even just backing up a little bit, I think that the problem is Prop 24 weakens the protections that we have today. So it rewrites DCPA not to make it stronger. I mean, it, there's a couple things that arguably makes it stronger, but on the whole, it walks us back from the rights that we enjoy today. Um, and then to Tracy's point, it's very difficult to amend. And I definitely wanna dig into these, these different provisions, um, but in, and it's a long one. So before we do that, let me talk a little bit more and ask you about the motivations for changing it and, and why Prop 24 came about. Because I, I think this is you know, part of the interesting saga of the California ballot initiatives and why some things wind up going to the direct democracy route, if you will. What is your understanding of why Alistair, and he, it sounds like he's the principal financier of and, this campaign. And Bob Hertzberg also is not financing it, but Hertzberg is, is very closely involved. Understood. So, so what's their motivation as far as you can tell? So look, like I, I'm not a psychologist. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, you, but, you I, play I one, but you play one on podcasts. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> My other job. Um, I, um, when you hear them speaking, they said like, oh, well, you know, like the there are so many amendments going through and we wanna make sure that that's not gonna happen going forward. Um, I, uh, it's hard, I, I don't know. I, um, I think that's the question, that is the question though, right? It, 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 it doesn't make sense from a timing perspective of why to do it now, because like I said earlier, the law just took effect in January and the attorney general really just started enforcing it. And so the issue is we don't really even know what needs to be changed and what doesn't need to be changed um, because it just hasn't been in practice long enough. Um, and I, I, I think that there's a play at, a, at what federal privacy legislation should be. So that's there's some things in Prop 24 that arguably bring us more in line with GDPR. Um, so maybe that's they're looking at that that longer term angle. Um, but at the end of the day, the problem is they're bringing a 52 page initiative to the voters that's incredibly complicated, that does things to weaken the rights that we have today. For example, there's a, a single word change in there that right now a, a business um, is prohibited from storing information on a consumer's device and then collecting it when that Californian leaves the state, which is really important, right? Because there's there's very strong notice requirements in there and a business is prohibited from collecting information that if it doesn't tell you that they're collecting that information, but this could potentially be a loophole to that. Prop 24 makes a single word change from prohibit to permit. So now it says, there's nothing in the section that shall 
shall pro shall um, prohibit a business from storing information on your device and then collecting it when you leave the state. And so this is in very simple terms, bad. And for someone who puts themselves out to be a privacy advocate, it just questions why would you do that unless you're trying to put an initiative that does some things and, and brings your name back into the spotlight. Um, but yet you don't have the huge battle that we would have had two years ago um, because you've done enough things in there to appease the biggest business interests and you're not afraid that they're going to really come after you. To speak a bit about McTaggart's motivations, just, you know, from the perspective of an observer. And as I told you, Brian, I have met the man twice. So I'm not speaking from any sort of long-term friendship or relationship of, of any sort. But I want to sort of, you know, get back to, I believe that the initial um, effort of Californians for Consumer Privacy was basically motivated by a certain sort of horror about the fact that our data it was essentially flying all over the place with very little regulation of any sort and frustration that the United States wasn't acting as the EU was, you know, to sort of do something on a sort of a broad, big picture basis. But the problem here is that, as Mary stated, we don't have any data on how CCPA is working yet. And normally when you modify a big sweeping law, kind of want to wait a bit to get an idea of what's working and what's not working. And instead we have sort of here one person's opinion about what should be changed and what shouldn't be changed. And the problem here is that we're talking about a very wealthy landlord, owned 16,000 apartments. So obviously money flowing in all, all over the place. And there's a certain sort of relationship with personal information and the companies that you do business with that is partially dependent on the strata that you fill in society. We're all the outcome of our own experiences. And I have questions here about whether the relationship of someone who owns a realty company that rents 16,000 apartments is really parallel or congruent to the wide range of privacy concerns and problems that people have throughout all sectors of California. In, in other words, can you get inside the body of, say, a welfare mother and understand what they're experiencing in a real way? So if you're not relying on data about what's working and what's not working, you're essentially relying on your own opinion. And I really think that in this case, we need to use a much wider lens when we talk about what the future of privacy law is going to be indefinitely because we're making rules here that are going to be hard and difficult to change and our lens here is not broad enough to the full range of experiences that people encounter with how their personal information is 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 handled and we can talk a bit about what privacy feels like if you're in an immigrant blended family, if you're on welfare, if you're homeless, these are, you know, these are sets of experiences that we, that we have to pay attention to. Well said, well said. So how have other companies come down on, on this issue? Are, 
you know, has tech companies come to a particular position, you know, as Experian, I think of the, a lot of big data players in this state, where do they stand on this? So Izzy um, Lepowski did a really good um, job investigating who influenced the process um, in an article that appeared in February in Protocol, which is Politico's new um, magazine. And so she found that Google and Facebook um, and Experian all played a role in the process. We, we don't know exactly what, but they were involved. And um, just as a point of comparison, two and a half years ago when we filed, well, it was after we filed the initiative, um, but it was in February of that year, there was an opposition campaign that formed and it, it was Google, Facebook, Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast, and they each put in $200,000, which was just an initial amount to, to fight the CCPA. Um, and, and they did. And, and then, of course, Cambridge Analytica happened and, and changed the, the optics around fighting privacy. Um, but it's been silence. There's, there's, no, there's no money. I mean, we, we've got a donation from the... California Nurses Association, which were, and an endorsement, which we're so thankful for. Um, but beyond that, the, we really haven't gotten resources um, to oppose this thing from the biggest companies. And they're not giving money that you can see on the other side, at least? Well, I don't think Alistair needs it. He's self-funding. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, no, the uh, campaign finance records show that Prop 24 has picked up about $5.4 million in donations and 5.3 and a half is from McTaggart. So it's very much a one-man operation. I think that you can see inside of Prop 24 some little pieces and bits that sort of track to the fact of who was involved in sort of putting this together and making some of the calls on what we're, what we're going to change and what we're not going to change. To give you two examples, um, the, the definition of publicly available information, publicly available information is basically exempt from CCPA. And while there are reasons for this, Prop 24 basically broadens that substantially using a term called widely distributed media, which basically includes social media that folks share. So when you exempt that kind of information, you, you not only potentially put an awful lot of people in, in danger, including you know, immigrants and protesters and journalists and other folks that might sort of share stuff that they're not really expecting to end up here, there, and everywhere, uh, but you also sort of see the impact of the big tech companies with social media platforms in what Prop 24 turned out to be. Because there's definitely a widening and a broadening and an excuse for them. Uh, in terms of, you know, chasing down third parties, Prop 24 says, well, you don't really have to do it if it involves disproportionate effort. And that kind of a loophole is done for the purposes of business. That's what it's for. And when we have a scenario where something like Clearview AI is scraping three and a half billion photos off of social media and selling them to the cops, well, you don't necessarily want to excuse um, third-party transfers off of social media. It's a problem. Yeah. Um, secondly, if you take a look at Experian, who we know sort of, you know, had some input into this, there's a very specific 
loophole about them selling the information of small business owners. And that is basically something that is in there because Experian asked for it. So we're not surprised that big tech is not opposed to this in, 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 in general because they got several things that they would have asked for from the legislature in Prop 24. Yeah. And just as a, a historical point too, when we wrote the CCPA, the initiative version of it, we talked to the ACLU, we talked to EFF, we talked to a lot of, of academics who had spent their professional careers thinking deeply about privacy. We didn't talk to the businesses until after we submitted the initiative because we wanted to hear what their input would be, um, but we didn't want them to write it. And I think the process has been reversed this time where you had Alistair and Senator Hertzberg in a room um, talking to a lot of the corporate lobbyists and, um, and not talking to the privacy advocates. And there was, there's, you know, a couple of versions, the way the initiative process works is you submit and then you have 30 days and you can amend. And the privacy, 11 different privacy groups wrote a, an open letter. You can, you can go to the EFF's website and read it, um, suggesting over 40 changes that they, and, and not changes to, that would materially alter what was in there. Well, I mean, I guess they would materially alter, but not things to go even further, but just things that were just wrong and, and harmful and, and took away rights that we have now. And not only were most of those changes rejected, um, the initiative in its final version got significantly more business friendly. From little things like changing, it used to be the California Privacy Rights and Enforcement Act, and then that got changed to the Pri California Privacy Rights Act. And that seems little, except when you're a business, what you're most afraid of is enforcement. And so I think just a word change, but it, 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 it signifies overall about how much the focus has um, really been to prop up business interests at the expense of consumers. The actual statistics are that 85% of the recommendations that privacy groups put forward, just in terms of making the initiatives stronger and at that point in time our basic feeling was these are the things that we would like you to put in so we can support it mm -hmm. um 85 percent were, were turned down and my sense is that business had a much higher success rate in the changes that they asked for you've done a good job of weaving in descriptions of the the really dangerous provisions of this are there any more that you'd want to highlight of i know this is i think you said 52 page boundaries but there's, there's a lot here. I, I i do um because yeah. this one is it goes in gay and prop 24 have never been opt-outs um but what the attorney general did in their rulemaking authority is that they clarified that a business both has to respond to a, a, a consumer saying not to sell their personal information by either clicking the do not sell my personal information link, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners see at the bottom of, of web pages in California. But even more significantly, they said that a business must also honor an electronic signal that indicates a consumer's preference to opt out of the sale of their personal information. So I think the way to think about that is 
It's like an ad blocker um, or a do not track signal. Um, so it makes it really easy for a consumer to opt out. So instead of going to every single homepage or every single app, you could use the signal um, and it would do it for you. What Prop 24 does is it gives the business the choice to either respond to the global opt-out signal or to post a do not sell my personal information link. And so what's gonna happen is that businesses are going to post this do not sell my personal information link because they know it's really hard to do. It takes time, it takes the, just the knowledge of knowing where to go. And so the net result is that many more consumers will not be opting out of the sale of their personal information because it's just that much harder to do and businesses are allowed to make it harder. So that's why status quo right now, which requires both, is a huge win for consumers. Um, and we don't want that taken away if Prop 24 passes. Makes, makes a ton of sense. Are, are there any others that listeners should, should understand us, assuming that they don't go online and read all 52 pages of this thing? <laughs> which they're not going to do yeah. at yeah. all. You know, there's yeah. a joke I, about I, I, I legislating. Yeah. yeah, it's a joke about legislating yeah. I, through the ballot box and how it's not a good idea. And yeah. this is a good reason why, because we're just giving you five or seven things that are wrong with it. And actually, there's probably about 20, about two. I think there's more. Does it? <laughs> and, you know, unless we all want to turn into privacy lawyers, this is very hard stuff to parse. And the idea that we are essentially forcing people to either, you know, accept McTaggart's word for it, that this is the best privacy law that we could possibly have, or to parse through 53 pages of dense legal text is kind of like a Hobson's choice, really. Um, it requires people to sort of take the words of warring privacy lawyers. And we really feel like that's a bad way to, to, so, to make and law. I, I would just say that the two points I would make are one, it effectively delays enforcement for three years because there's a provision in there. So right now the attorney general is enforcing the CCPA and the rules they wrote. There's a provision in there that says if Prop 24 passes that any areas of the law that are amended or added um, by Prop 24 cannot be enforced until July 1st of 2023 and only apply to violations after that point in time. And the problem is because the law rewrites our current law and changes a lot of the core definitions, it touches almost every single piece of current law. And so I think that's going to really um, make it difficult for the Attorney General's office to bring robust enforcement actions, which is what we need right now. And it's kind of like a carte blanche to business until kind of 2023, right? Because we're shaking things up. Everything's changing. You have to take down your old system, put up a new system. And basically nothing's going to be enforced until 2023. And what we hear from voters on an ongoing basis is they're concerned about what's happening to their data right now. And by 2023, it's going to be worse than it is today. And then just the other point that I wanted to add is um, it's benefits the biggest companies at the expense of businesses that are still big and still considered a business under the CCPA. And the reason is if you're a Google or a Facebook or Amazon, you have huge compliance budgets. And so you can afford to make the changes that are required 
under this law, and, and remember, they're not just legal changes, they're, they're very technical changes, but there are a significant number of businesses that are covered that the official government estimates are that businesses spent $55 billion complying with the CCPA. And That's incredible. Again, there are businesses that you've heard of, they don't have, sorry, say that again? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a huge amount of money and yeah. they're gonna have to do that all over again if Prop 24 passes because the changes are significant. And there's a lot of businesses that I, I think just simply are not going to be able to do that. So, yeah, I want to end with this, this topic, though, that uh, Tracy was just bringing up. is what, what do you think the right role is for ballot initiatives? Because I, you know, I think this is, this is sort of an extreme example. There's a lot of weird stuff on the ballot in any given year. Um, you know, there's some, there's some high-profile issues this year that, that I think probably do belong there that, that sort of get yeah. to, like, fundamental rights in society. I think Prop 16 on affirmative action is actually a good example of something yep. that belongs there. But th this is, you know, at least in my opinion, an abuse of the ballot process. Obviously, no one's going to read a 52, 53-page thing. And, you know, I was, I was sort of taken by one of the editorials I read on this is, you know, you lose, when you go to the ballot with that kind of dense topic, you lose the ability to have the amendment process in Sacramento, which, yes, is messy. Yes, has all its flaws. But that's, the democratic form that we've come up with where you don't have to do take it or leave it on laws. You, you, you actually have a chance to amend things along the way. Yeah. Um, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you think the right limits are? And should we maybe think about changing the, the, the ballot initiative process in California? Well, my take on that is things that go on the ballot should be things you can basically answer yes or no. In a, in a really broad sense, because that's all that you get to say on a ballot. You get to say yes, or you get to say no. That's it. You can't say yes, but I like this part, not that part. So on something broad, like should felons have the right to vote in California? You can answer that yes, or, or you can answer that no. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, four dozen changes to a bill, you're basically asking people to take this whole package with the bad and kind of good and take it as sort of one big kind of clump of clay mm -hmm. and basically what happens there is you have to sort of judge on a preponderance is the preponderance good or the preponderance bad and that requires people to analyze 53 pages of text it requires them to also go back to current law and understand what they already have and and, and don't have and it basically means they have to take a lot of stuff that they might not like in order to take some stuff that, that they might like. And it doesn't really get us to the best possible law in the end. For example, in Sacramento last year, in 2019, CCPA passed kind of in a last minute rush kind of situation. Nobody was entirely happy with it. And business said, we're gonna come back in 2019 and we're gonna change all kinds of things. And they put in approximately, I think it was, a dozen and a half bills to modify CCPA. And of those, a very small quantity, about four or five actually made it through the process. Most were amended and changed. And in the end, we ended up with some pretty minor changes to CCPA because the legislative process for better or worse kind of culled those things down, took the ideas that had some merit, threw away the ideas that didn't. 
And what we have here is sort of the opposite of that process. We have to take it all, like it or not. And there's a number of things here that we're being asked to swallow that really, as people looking out for our own interests as, as Californians, we shouldn't have to swallow. And what I was going to say is, I think two years ago, we needed the initiative to be the scary hammer to get Sacramento to pass the CCPA. And I, I mm. honestly don't think that we would have had the CCPA had we not had this initiative. And then there's so much pressure on the legislators to do their job, but we don't need that anymore. And instead you get a process where you have one person who's very wealthy, that has his own idea about privacy, talking to the people he deems worthy to talk to, and was not elected. And so there aren't the hearings, there aren't the accountability, the, I mean, the irony in all of this is the basis of privacy law and is the basis of, of the CCPA is transparency, the right to know what personal information a business is collecting about you and how they're using that information. And this process hasn't been transparent at all. And so we're left with some things that are good for privacy, but on the whole, it doesn't. And, and so you're left with this asking voters to make a decision about something that none of us are really qualified to decide. I mean, to be fair, I've been going to a lot of democratic clubs and community organizations because they basically have been saying, come and tell us in five minutes what Prop 24 does and <laughs> what it doesn't do so we can make up our minds. And these are people that are making endorsements and are telling other people how to vote. And they need help to sort of, you know, parse through this whole thing. So where is your average voter? They're nowhere. And this is not really the process by which we can sort of tackle such a such a complicated subject and an ever-changing subject because yeah. data privacy. Well said, well said. Well, um, listen, I, I'm so grateful that you guys are working on this. There's there's a lot of noise on the ballot this year, and and this is one that I hope people will pay at least enough attention to to know that it's it's not something that uh, either should pass on the merits or belongs on the ballot in its form. Where can people find out more about your campaign against Prop 24? Sure, we're on social media and we have a website which is knowon24ca.org. And if somebody wants one of those speakers, one of you presumably to come out to one of their clubs, they can, they can reach you there, I imagine? Absolutely. Great, great. Well, thank, thank you so much for being on the show. Great, great having you, Tracy. Great having you, Mary. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. We Thank you, for Thanks for listening to Nation State of Play. Our producers are Hannah Miller and Jacqueline Artiaga. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. For more information, click through the link on your podcast app to our homepage.